Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Weber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent. Coming at you from the most southern tip of Africa to discuss the hot topic of corruption in international arbitration, I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues from Weber Wenzel, Dylan Cron, Prathik Monhalal, and Chandani Gopal. I am Kirsten Volmerans, and thank you for tuning in today. In kicking off today, I think that we can all agree that having been exposed to a number of commercial transactions, part and parcel of investing across borders is considering avenues of mitigating your risk exposure. Especially when dealing with a government entity in your business transaction, are you certain that the local courts will protect your company in cases where there are, let's say, allegations of bribery by a public official? The answer to this question is, it's hard to be sure, and that international arbitration offers a more certain means to deal with corruption. As will be demonstrated in this podcast, international arbitration is evolving to respond to the issues of how arbitrators deal with corruption allegations relating to underlying issues in dispute, as well as what happens when corruption creeps into the proceedings themselves. So Dylan, in getting the ball rolling, we need to start at the very beginning. Do arbitrators actually have the authority to deal with allegations of corruption relating to underlying issues in dispute? Thanks, Kirsten. Yes, fundamentally, it's a question of jurisdiction. And an arbitration tribunal's subject matter competence is generally set out in a number of instruments, private contract or bilateral treaty, the institutional rules adopted, and then the body of law which applies to the arbitration itself. Typically, the first two instruments wouldn't expressly exclude corruption, and it's the third where some confusion has arisen. Uh, The reason for this is that corruption by its very nature includes criminal components, but arbitration tribunals generally don't have any criminal jurisdiction. What this doesn't mean, however, is that civil corruption can't be considered by an arbitration tribunal. Admittedly, there are outliers in this regard, such as a 1963 ICC decision which involved bribery of officials, and the arbitrator held there that the criminal nature of the act completely precluded him from assuming jurisdiction. We have evolved somewhat from there, however, and today we're seeing multiple regimes and multiple arbitrations where corruption is considered, generally as a shield or defensive mechanism to prevent a tainted contract being given effect to. That's, that's very interesting. I'm glad it's evolved, that's for sure. But what happens where parties are trying to hide their corruption? So to gain this all-powerful arbitral award, how should the arbitrator approach a situation where corruption allegations are not raised by the parties, but based on the evidence, the arbitrator suspects existence of corruption? It, it's a good question and a very difficult question because there's an inherent tension which arises Arbitration tribunals are there to determine what has been referred to them, and if corruption hasn't been raised by a party, they may struggle to raise it unilaterally, bearing in mind that they can't be seen to descend into the arena and themselves investigate an issue, nor can they be seen to be formulating a cause of action or potential defence. If they do overstep, there's a danger that their award may not be enforceable, and that it may offend public policy or procedural safeguards in various jurisdictions. The other side of the coin is that if there are red flags indicating corruption and they do nothing, 
then they may allow the arbitral process to be abused and for a contaminated contract to be, to be given effect to, which in and of itself may also give rise to enforcement issues. I think the most sensible approach is that the, the arbitration tribunal, if there is evidence and if there are sufficient red flags, is that it remains neutral, raises those questions and ensures that it affords all the parties the necessary procedural and substantive safeguards to deal with those queries. Yeah, I think that's definitely the way to go to also just to protect the legitimacy of arbitration. But then having established that there's now a scope for the arbitrator to address these allegations, the next step is actually how are arbitrators supposed to approach the onus of proof of allegations in this regard? So corruption by its nature takes place in the shadows. And various authorities and academics have therefore adopted a relatively sympathetic approach to the party trying to prove this. And one of the suggestions has been to lower the onus, to almost create a reverse onus, if you will. That has generally been criticized, however, for a number of reasons. Not only is it difficult to prove the absence of corruption, but also in various jurisdictions, reverse onuses are themselves unlawful. So if applied in an arbitration, it may be incapable of being enforced in a domestic regime. It probably also leads to the question of the standard of proof, which has also been subject to some differing standards. There are two extremes in that regard. The first one being lowering the standard to a mere reasonable indication, which once established then kicks in a reverse onus and the other party has to prove it. That has been criticized essentially for the same reasons I've touched on already. There is then almost an overcorrection in the other direction, where given the seriousness of the allegation of corruption, tribunals have held that they need clear and convincing evidence or proof beyond a doubt. This super standard has also been criticized, uh, particularly given the difficult nature of proving corruption. Ultimately, the accepted position, and, and one with which I agree, is that the ordinary civil standard of proof, being the balance of probabilities, applies. There's no need to increase or decrease the standard or to reverse the onus simply because one's dealing with corruption. And it also represents a happy medium, if you will, which also correlates with the recognized standard of proof in, in various jurisdictions, which does sort of soothe the way when recognition and enforcement is to be considered. Thank you, Dylan. I think we all know that corruption has a long reach and it may not necessarily be limited to these issues that are in dispute. Prathik, talk to me about when corruption seeps into the arbitral procedure itself and you realize that your opponent or their witness is likely to be corrupt. Thanks, Kirsten. So like you point out, corruption in an arbitration can affect uh, various role players. It can affect the parties to the arbitration itself, it can affect the witnesses called by the parties, and it can affect the arbitrators themselves as well. The starting point, ideally, is the, the parties to the arbitration. And in that respect, one needs to consider the fundamental rule in, in international arbitrations, uh, which is provided in Article 18 of the Institutional Model Law, which essentially provides that parties must be treated with equality and must be allowed a full opportunity to present their case. Now, I think these provisions form the basic requirements of natural justice in most jurisdictions. So it's no surprise that they are fundamental to both domestic and international arbitrations. With that in mind, where an arbitral tribunal becomes aware that a party has engaged in some sort of corrupt activity, 
that directly impacts upon an arbitration, that tribunal will need to take steps to address that or else it risks the integrity of the arbitration um, being undermined. And it, of course, risks that any award it delivers may be open to challenge. So, for example, where a tribunal establishes that a party has paid one of its witnesses to provide false evidence, it may be necessary for the tribunal to treat that errant party differently, perhaps by imposing conditions or by effectively circumscribing the, the manner in which that party presents its evidence in order to preserve the integrity of the arbitration and ensure that the party effectively does not engage in any further instances of, of corrupt activities. Uh, and in that instance, an, you know, tribunal can and probably should impose even a punitive cost order against that, uh, that party. So it's in those types of situations where the fundamental rule that parties be treated equally um, and have a full opportunity to present their case may be restricted. Sure. So it sounds like quite the fine line to trade for the arbitrator. But so, so how would the evidence of a witness perceived in, be perceived in international arbitration? And how would these allegations impact such evidence then? So with the international arbitrations, um, how witness evidence is dealt with will largely depend on the law governing the disputes, together with any institutional rules that have been agreed between the parties. Now, generally, and speaking from my own experience, is in the international and domestic arbitrations that I've been involved in, there haven't been substantial differences between the two insofar as matters of evidence are concerned. And this isn't really surprising because if you consider the IBA's rules on the taking of evidence in international arbitration, you'll find that it's very similar to the provisions that we incorporate when we, you know, dealing with uh, expert witnesses and factual witnesses. What's interesting about the ABA rules, though, is that it empowers a tribunal to specifically exclude evidence in circumstances where there is a contravention of the law governing the arbitration or the ethical rules that the parties to the arbitration are bound by. Evidence may also be excluded where the arbitral tribunal determines that there's a need to maintain fairness and equality between the parties. So there is quite a wide discretion that the tribunal is afforded, and it will likely be exercised in circumstances where, for example, the tribunal becomes aware that the evidence of a witness is false or has been tainted by corruption. So then what powers does the arbitrator have that it would assist it to prove the possible fraud or corruption on the part of a party? Is this maybe overstepping his powers or what, what do you think? That's a very good question, Kirsten. Um, I think we all know that, you know, crimes like fraud and corruption can be very difficult to, to prove. Uh, and this is generally because, you know, these crimes are often quite intricate and they're committed by fairly sophisticated people who know how to cover up their tracks. So you can imagine that, you know, it's quite difficult for arbitral tribunals to try and establish corruption because they don't have the same powers that courts do or law enforcement would have, you know, so they can't on their own accord, you know, subpoena witnesses to, you know, give evidence or to produce documents. And they also wouldn't be able to, you know, approach the court on an urgent basis to, you know, attain and preserve evidence. Um, but with that being said, many institutional rules do empower uh, arbitral tribunals in certain circumstances to 
call witnesses to you know provide evidence and even to call for documents and in these situations it does open up an opportunity for the tribunal to try and potentially cross-examine a witness or even call for potentially incriminating documents like bank statements and the like that may you know prove the suspected fraud um, so tribunals certainly are not helpless but at the same time their powers are quite constrained so then taking this discussion one step further, what do you do when your arbitrator himself or herself appears to be corrupt? This is, it's unsurprisingly dealt with in, in a number of, of institutional um, rules. So one example is the UNCTRAL arbitration rules for international arbitrations, which essentially provide that where circumstances arise that cause a party to doubt the independence or impartiality of an arbitrator on justifiable grounds, that party may formally challenge the independence and impartiality of that arbitrator. And if that arbitrator resists that challenge, then that party may approach the um, appointing authority by the institution and seek the removal of the arbitrator at that level. Uh, Another example is the LCIA rules, which by comparison empowers the LCIA court to remove an arbitrator if it is established that the arbitrator deliberately violated the arbitration agreement or failed to act fairly or impartially um, in an arbitration. So there's certainly provisions and options available to a party to challenge a corrupt arbitrator. And what those options are will ultimately depend on the the rules uh, governing the arbitration. Thank you. Thank you, Prathik. It's good to know that there are certain safeguards entrenched in the procedure to protect arbitration legitimacy. But sometimes the discovery of corruption is only made later, once the final award has actually been made. Chandani, maybe you could chat to me. In many jurisdictions, there is a presumptive obligation to recognize and enforce international arbitral awards. There are, however, avenues which an award can be challenged on the basis of corruption. Let's chat about that a bit. The New York Convention and the UNCTRAL model law, which provides for an exception to the recognition and enforcement of an arbitral award. And this was actually mentioned by, by Dylan a little earlier. Um, and that is where an award is against public policy. And I think world over, you can probably agree that corruption is generally accepted to be against public policy, right? And And that's not surprising. It's in itself, it's abhorrent. It's, it's antithetical to the very nature of rule of law. Um, and if you think about it in, in the investment arbitration context, corruption actually dampens investor confidence. So I think the takeaway there is that, yes, there's a generally accepted public policy against corruption, and there's an exception there. But I must say that this doesn't mean that, that this position is, is without challenge. So tell me, that's that's quite an interesting line. Tell me more about that. Well, in international arbitration and actually all arbitrations for that matter, there there are two competing schools of thought on this. And the one is pro-enforcement. And and this principle really lies in, in what people consider to be the main attraction of arbitration. And that is that arbitrations are more expedient than going to a court um, and they bring finality and certainty really quickly. The, the decisions are binding, there's confidentiality, and it just gives an investor a lot more security in, in recognizing that, look, that this too shall pass almost. Um, so 
in this school of thought, we have uh, the challenge to to enforcement runs counter to this. Um, but then you've got the pro-public policy approach. And this actually places an emphasis on state sovereignty. And, and what, what we filter into here is what are the main interests of a state? What, what are the fundamental values? And, and the question is, all right, so our listeners may be asking which way will the cards fall? And um, the answer is, again, it depends. Um, in some jurisdictions, you've got an emphasis on pro-enforcement. In others, you have an emphasis on corruption actually being a very, very, very strong public policy ground um, that acts as an exception to enforcement. But uh, almost in the way that Dylan was explaining the onus of, of proof, um, the, the best approach seems to be somewhere in the middle. And it's called the contextual approach. And that's really where you take into account all the circumstances of a given case. And what that is going to be is, again, differing from jurisdictions. What's going to happen in Europe as opposed to Asia or Africa? Who knows? I guess this just emphasizes the point of having to look in advance of where any possible award will need to be enforced eventually and to try to take the necessary safeguards in advance. Be that as may, I mean, we all know that corruption is an issue that plagues the globe, not just any particular country or continent. But as we're sitting here in South Africa, looking closer to home, how is Africa as a whole seeking to prevent corruption in international arbitration? Well, I would say that Africa has made some great strides in being very proactive in taking measures to rid itself of this perception that corruption is rife. Um, and and. I would say that it almost practices what it preaches. And where this comes from is generally in, in our continental and regional um, instruments. So from an Africa perspective, you've got the AU Convention on Preventing and Combating Corruption. In, in West Africa, you've got the ECOWAS Protocol. And closer to home, you've got the SADC Protocol. And what I find very interesting about these protocols in this convention is they're all aimed at really uh, prioritizing and and fostering cross-border transactions. And they provide these almost like a blueprint of of best practice in what should your country be doing to, to guard against corruption. So for example, they'll say, you need legislation dealing with money laundering. You need to have legislation dealing with the funding of political parties, access to information. And I just find it very interesting that domestically within our own country and, and other African countries, we've, we've really taken this to heart. Um, and uh, yeah, this is, this is everywhere in South Africa. We've got POCA, we've got the Access to Information Act, um, Anti-Money Laundering Act, same in Kenya, Tanzania. So I think we're 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 not too far off from our from our international counterparts, and yeah, we've made some great strides. It's promising, promising, and I, I don't think investors should be deterred from investing in Africa. It is clear that whilst many African countries and regions have taken key steps to strengthen accountability and eradicate corruption. The challenges that Africa faces in fighting corruption cannot and should not be underestimated. 
As pointed out at the start of this podcast, there are ways in which companies can help to mitigate their risks when commencing on a transaction. As demonstrated by Dylan Prithik and Chandani, strides are being made in the international arbitration realm to address issues of corruption. This should hopefully provide a degree of comfort and certainty to parties to a transaction agreeing to international arbitration as a means of dispute resolution. This has been a Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. Our executive producer is Andrea Collicott. This podcast is produced by Weber Wenzel by Volume. I'm your host, Kirsten Volmerantz, and thank you very much for listening. You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.